Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is John Van Lunen, and you are listening to Treasures of the Outer Banks, the podcast that celebrates the people and places that make this beach special. This is episode 040 with Hannah Bunn West, the author of the book, Remarkable Women of the Outer Banks. Hannah was raised on the Outer Banks and still calls it home to this day. Hannah has curated a list of amazing women who possess traits of toughness and persistence. Some of their stories are historical, while others are highly meaningful. Either way, they endured and made a difference. Let's get started. Though some of their stories were hard to uncover, and though their backgrounds are diverse, each of these women swam against the tide in her day and age. It is said that well-behaved women seldom make history. This depends, however, on how you define misbehavior. If it means charting your own course, taking a stand, or speaking out to affect change, the women in these pages misbehaved indeed. The aim of this book, then, is to highlight them in our remarkable history. And that is a quote directly from the introduction of Remarkable Women of the Outer, Outer Banks by Hannah Bun West. And Hannah is here today with me. Thanks for meeting me, Hannah. Thank you so much. I'm excited. Excellent. And how did you come up with this list? How did I come up with this list? I, um, and I think I talk about it in my introduction, too. Um, I, I've always loved history, and our local history is so fascinating. Um, and working at the First Colony Inn, which is I think, the last historic hotel we have out here on the Outer Banks, um, that just, yeah, it, it was a really inspiring place. And then I would drive home and I would pass Jockey's Ridge and um, Carolus de Baum is, her story was somewhat well known. I wanted to do a deep dive of it in my book, but, um, you know, I think of her and then I think of um, just all these different landmarks and different parts of our history. And I kept kind of uncovering these little breadcrumbs of women that were linked to these things that right. we might have heard of the event or the landmark, but never the, the woman tied to it and her contributions to it. So. Right. Um, I didn't really have a clear list when I, even when I proposed this book to my publisher, um, they just kind of, it just kind of fell into place. Um, I, that was a pretty gutsy move by the publisher. Yeah. Yeah. I, they, of course they needed a, they needed a, I say brief, it was 17 pages, but a okay. pr book proposal. Okay. Um, but it had to kind of have a, a, an outline for an idea. Um, it definitely wasn't in any means of a finished product, which is interesting with nonfiction because you don't have to um, have a finished book manuscript at the time of your I contract. I see, yeah, so it because works a little it can bit be ongoing, the yeah, research can research be ongoing. Bit. Yeah, exactly. And um, so even some of them I was, you know, already working on the book. Um, for example, Chrissy Bowser, I had taken my kids to Island Farm over in Mano mm -hmm. and um, had never heard of Chrissy Bowser, but the woman that was doing the historical interpretation in the cookhouse there um, told my kids and myself about her, and I was like, okay, that's a chapter right yeah, there. So, perfect. Yeah. And let's see, you obviously did a lot of research. Uh, so I'd like to go down the list of the, the women that you had in the book, and maybe, you know, we can just come up with a few things and, and talk about each woman. You start off with Eleanor Dale, Eleanor Dare, yeah. the first uh, British woman in the Americas, I guess, were on the Eastern Seaboard. And she gave birth to the first British child in America. And, you know, did, did you, is there anything that you found that revealing about her personality in your research? That, that kind of became the point of her chapter, I think. Um, you know, she is famously known for being the mother of the right. first English child born in the, in the new world, quote unquote, um, her child being Virginia Dare. And 
so we know her, we know her name, she's got this fame and this notoriety, but we know so little, right. r- virtually nothing about her as a person or as a woman. Right. Um, so that kind of became the point, and I kind of tried to speculate, I guess, what paint that experience might have been like for her, paint a picture exactly. Um, I think, yeah, I was pregnant with my second child while I was writing this book, and I'm just thinking, <laughs> Can okay, you imagine? <laughs> no. <laughs> You're eight months pregnant. You've just crossed the ocean on a wooden boat. How crazy it's is that? It's July. You know, you have your baby in this brand new wild place in yeah. August. Just, With the, just yeah. Minimal resources. Minimal. And the natives may or may not have been hostile. Yeah. And at this point, unfortunately, they were. It was a very hostile environment because right. of the previous colonies antics we'll say right. so she was yeah hostile territory and no resources and the experience of becoming a new mother right i, I think there's a, a just obviously her her toughness and endurance and, and a lot of these women you know show some kind of they definitely show some toughness oh yeah <laughs> and 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 many of them show some endurance because they just she just she was out there yeah. just and and unfortunately we don't get any um any of her own voice really so we have yeah. journals and um, diaries by her father john white right. um, ralph lane kept a detailed account thomas harriet kept accounts of these expeditions but um, we have nothing from her or from any of the other women on the voyage right. um, i guess if anything um, if you've heard of the dare stone it was the um, they haven't proven it to be a hoax or to be right. historically you know uh not a hoax but um if there was one place where we get something in her voice or written in the historical records, that that would be it. But right. And you know, out. it's so I just had an opportunity to listen to Scott Dawson talk, and I just got his book and yeah. started his book, and and he is uncovering, literally uncovering, mm-hmm. uh, history down on Hatteras Island of what may be remnants of that colony uh, that may or may not have moved to from yeah. Roanoke Island to Hatteras Island. The English being down on Hatteras Island, boy, wouldn't it be great to just find some DNA that somehow tied those people all together. But I know that's never going to happen because so many people have been removed from this area. But yeah, it's uh, it's a great story. Let's move on to Chrissy Bowser. She, uh, uh, an African-American woman who lived on Roanoke Island, uh, somehow, somewhere she, she got her freedom, right? But, but it's, it's vague. It's very vague. It's really vague. I had to, this is probably the chapter that I had to really dig and, just pour through census records and any other kind of record I could. Um, Specifically because any person that was enslaved would not have been in the records by name. Right. Um, They were counted among property. They were numbered male and female, but no names. Right. Um, And yeah, there's still differing opinions on whether she was enslaved and and gained her freedom or whether she was born um, free because there was a... um, a free black population on Roanoke Island. And a lot of them were Bowsers, the last name Bowser. Actually, the majority of the, the free, how it's listed on the census is, um, quote, free colored. So those that group of people, most of them had the last name Bowser. Right. But um, Chrissy did not appear on that list until after, she didn't appear on any census records until after 1867, which would have been the first one post-Civil Civil War. War yeah. um, so it's like a kind of a big um, question mark right. sort of hanging over. Um, and so nice. she was, so she cooked for a local family, mm-hmm. probably did some other work as well. And you, you paint a picture that she was 
good at storytelling and she seemed to have a very pleasant nature to herself. Um, how, how did you get that from your research? Yeah, from my research. So the, um, again, with Island Farm over on Manio, it's, um, it's a kind of historical reenactment, I guess, um, or a living history site of the Etheridge family farm and homestead um, dating to about the 1840s. So um, that is where I first learned about Chrissy Bowser, and that's where she uh, worked for that family. Um, they do, the family did have, I think it was five or six enslaved people. Um, I believe, because I went there recently, that they interpret her as being one of those enslaved people. But then you get other people saying that she was not enslaved. Right. Um, but they, there was some um, historical records and accounts of the Etheridge family kind of recalling memories of her. And they referred to her as Aunt Chrissy or Aunt Chrissy. Um, and suggesting, you know, that she had this, this familial tie with the family. Um, but then to sort of present the other side of the coin, there's also uh, memories written down of her, her sitting in front of her quarters or her house and kind of having her foot, her leg across the door, very much like stay out. This is my space. So, right. um, and we don't, we don't. Again, we don't get any of her voice or her stories right. or her records. So, I wouldn't want to assume how she actually felt. But I think the people in her life, um, you know, thought fondly of her. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and I've done a little bit of research on some of the people that were free, non-free slaves. Uh, and the one little theory that I have is that they're, they didn't have the ability, the mobility to move. Even even mm -hmm. once after Civil War, War was over, yeah. they didn't have the, the ability to just go get a job and, you know, right. cash in all their chips and, and go find some great place to live. Right. It just, they just didn't have that ability. So she was probably kind of stuck here on purpose so to, yes. well, or maybe not on purpose but she was stuck here and she probably did what you know she worked where she could work mm -hmm. it, uh, so it, it not totally surprising and a quote from late in that chapter on on miss chrissy and chrissy is on the day of her death in early march she was laid out in one of the etheridge's storehouses where family and friends could pay their last respects then buried under the ancient tree still known to this day as the Chrissy Oak and that's kind of interesting to me I'm thinking a storehouse was kind of like a barn so if she was really respected you know wouldn't you know if they, if they really wanted to put on a show for her, wouldn't they put her in the parlor the main parlor mm -hmm. of the house or you know could have been maybe they just couldn't put that many people in the house so the storehouse was just more accommodating i don't know again i'm speculating yeah. but in in one regard they were showing her the respect that she deserved but maybe not 100 percent because she was african-american which yeah, was kind of typical at yeah, that time because there were in my research that there was a parlor or a part of the house where they would lay out family members that had died, you know, for visitation. So, yeah, that's an interesting kind of line to draw or look right. at. And it may have been societal or it may have been, yeah, there's there's all sorts of lines that we try to interpret today and to the best that we can. But, yeah, I think with a lot of this, I didn't want to, I didn't, I certainly didn't want to put words in anyone's mouth like, sure. retroactively. So sure. I kind of, with the book, just tried I'll to. I'll speculate. Yeah. <laughs> I tried to present it as objectively as I can. But to your point about, um, because they do say, you know, she was enslaved, but even after the Civil War, she chose to stay here. But how much freedom as a woman in the 1860s do you have? I mean, women right. didn't even have much freedom to start their own life up until 
fairly recent history, so right. her options may have been limited in that regard. So, so the title of the book is Remarkable Women. Uh, what do you think, to you, what is what makes Chrissy Bowser remarkable? I think um, what makes her remarkable is just the odds that she had against her and, and where she ended up in from just this, the scope of her life, from starting out possibly as an enslaved person to the end of her life. She's a property owner. You know, she's independent. She lives alone. She yeah, subsists on her own, essentially, um, in such a unique part of the world, in such a unique, tight-knit community that has its share of problems, you know, yeah. on the, the global scale with a, a, a war going on. But, um, yeah, just the life she was able to make for herself is remarkable. Right. This is, yeah, you're bringing up a good point. She she fought against uh, some tough odds there, no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Irene Tate, this story, uh, I'd never really heard of this story. So this was the one story where I knew nothing about, and it's cool. and it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Um, let's see. She knew, as a, I guess as a three-year-old or something like that, she met the Wright brothers mm-hmm. who stayed at her house. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and... You know, talk about life coming full circle. She becomes a pilot. And at one point she had a world record or she set the world record for a female unmanned flight or a female man flight from, what was it, New York to... To Miami. To Miami. First round trip. First, first to make a round trip. From okay, thank you. I was, I was trying to find in my notes yeah. and I can't see it. But but yeah, um, so this, this story is... Uh, Pretty remarkable. And now we're starting to get into more recorded history yeah. where the other ones were a lot tougher to research. Oh, yes. There was there was some stories behind Irene Tate. Um, Irene Tate was extremely progressive for her time, uh, being a woman flying and all that stuff. What do you think made her so independent? I have to attribute some of her independence to probably just growing up in Kitty Hawk at the time. <laughs> right. I mean, there was... In, I love, love, love finding all the old historical photos and the photos of Kitty Hawk around 1900, 1903, when the Wright brothers were out here. It's just sand. It's just sand hills and some scrub oaks. And um, there's a old, it's really blurry, but there's a picture of what Kitty Hawk Village at that time looked like. And it's just a few little buildings yeah. and houses. And yeah. I think just, um, she was educated. She she had gone to um, school and, and even um, college and everything like that. But, you know, this was her home for most of her life. And I think that kind of shaped her. Right. And, How crazy must must it have been for a kid growing up in the early 1900s? I mean, scratch out, scratching out an existence on the Outer yeah. Banks and then going up to Norfolk to go to college. I mean, yeah. talk about you know, little pig in the city, geez, (laughs) you know, and, and Norfolk's not even, I guess Norfolk was kind of a teeming with activity because of the port and everything like that. But man, that must've been crazy. Yeah. Uh, towards, uh, let's see, just to show you, give you an an example, uh, another quote from her her chapter, she logged over 50,000 miles in the air and became the first woman to fly round trip between New York and Miami. And that must've been, geez, what do you think that was? 1920s? I would say so. I think her first trip up in a plane was 1918, okay. if I'm quoting my own research right. Yeah, I think um, I see that. Which I thought was interesting because that even predated um, Amelia Earhart. They were actually born in the same year. Right, in that crazy? So they were both kind of these like pioneers in flight for women. Um, yeah. yeah, and Amelia Earhart's more famous now. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of yes. funny because their trajectory was It was really similar. Very yeah. similar. And their ties to the Wright brothers. You know, Amelia Earhart was out here for the dedication of the... Monument and the first flight boulder and right. some really cool old photos. That's, of that's that. amazing. Yeah, and she 
and she relocates to New Jersey with her husband. Mm -hmm. They do, I don't know if it was considered barnstorming, but they did some, uh, still stayed uh, very present in the flying industry. And yet she was still very resourceful building a new house up in New Jersey, uh, much like uh, the people on the Outer Banks would be resourceful in taking scrap lumber and wood and yeah. projects and just putting it in there. Yep. She salvaged, um, she actually salvaged parts of shipwreck even up there and, and incorporated into their home up there. And, um, her story to me is just, I had never heard of it. First of all, I'd heard of the Tate family and there, of course there's, um, Tate family still has deep roots out here now, but I'd never heard of her specifically. And her stories is so interesting. Right. And, and, um, did you meet her descendants at all? Um, I, I did not. I know that Suzanne Tate, the author, is a, you know, a well-known Tate around here. And I'm oh, curious right? to see how, how their family line. Um, okay. I, I did. I didn't meet them in person, but I did. I was able to find her granddaughters, um, three of Irene Tate's granddaughters. And they are now living in all different parts of the country. But um, one of them, so generously, Tammy, um, shared all the photos that are in Irene oh, Tate. Cool. Or most of the photos in her chapter. Um she, I mean, she literally dug them out of storage in her house and, wow. and scanned them and shared them with me. Wow. So that was really special. That yeah. is nice. Mm -hmm. So moving on to the next lady, Nellie Myrtle Pridgen. Mm -hmm. And I seem to vaguely recall either her, when she died, because it was kind of became big news. Mm -hmm. You know, here's this obscure little lady just beachcombing on the Outer mm -hmm. Banks every day. <laughs> but when she died, boy, she left quite a, quite an impression on quite a few people. Yeah. I'm trying to I'm trying to remember when she died. Do you remember off the top say of your head? I it was in the 90s, and I know that they she passed away in the summer, in the height of tourist season, and her family and everyone who knew and loved her knew to not hold her <laughs> service until the tourists were gone, and so right. they waited until the fall until the right. season. Right. And and in your opinion, what makes Nellie Myrtle Pridgen remarkable? So Nellie Myrtle's reputation precedes her, and a lot of people have a lot of things to say about her. her um, and I think what makes her remarkable, though, is that she was not concerned with being liked or likable. Um, <laughs> she was such a just staunch believer in in what she believed in and preserving sure. this area and this place. And, um, yeah, I think a lot of women are really concerned with being likable, and she was not concerned with that at all. Right. <laughs> That's so remarkable to me. Yeah, and and now we're starting to see the preservationists. Mm -hmm. You know, she might have been well, she she was probably the the most popular first preservationist mm -hmm. of of somebody that just wanted to preserve the Outer Banks for what it was, the nature. Uh, she was obviously close to nature every day. She was on the beach every single day, mm -hmm. just collecting stuff. And I thought I heard a rumor they were going to try to make that house or building a museum or yeah. some kind of historical There's place. Been a long drawn out sort of up and down battle with that yeah um it's by the way for the listeners it's still standing on the beach road uh just south of the uh kitty hawk kites uh, yep. mothership mm -hmm. yep and i um was fortunate to be able to go in and have a look around because for for several years it was operating as the outer bank speechcomber museum um it's not anymore gotcha but being able to go in there and be amongst her collection was in, cool. Amazing, yeah, and just built in Outer Banks history, not necessarily her collection, but there's an old phone booth in there where at the time it was one of two on the whole island, from what I understand, from what I remember. Hilarious. Um, there's a dining table that was came off the wreck of the Huron. Like, there's just wow. if you're a history lover, that place like it gives yeah. me chills just thinking about yeah. it. And I think you know, just a few years ago, they would still open it up once a year and mm -hmm. let people walk through. Mm -hmm. Somehow, I always miss it, but I'd love to go check it out. Yeah. That would be my 
that'd be on my bucket list. All right, let's bump down to Carolista. Did I say that, Carolista? Carolista. Carolista Baum. And uh, she helped save Jockey's Ridge. And again, okay, so here's the preservationist coming out. And I tell you, uh, I admire the Outer Bankers for just seeing the importance of saving some of our natural resources. That's not my stomach. That's a cat. <laughs> Cat's as big as a dog. <laughs> Somebody feed that cat. Um, so, you know, I, I admire the Outer Bankers, the, the people that had the vision in the beginning to see what natural resources had to be saved. And Jockey's Ridge was one of them. It was, it was somebody who was ready to d develop it. And she stepped up and she was just a normal person. She wasn't a politician. She was just a local biz, small time business owner. Um, do you, do you know, so you, you pro we're probably getting a little closer to descendants and uh -huh. stuff. Um, do you know how she felt about her notoriety? Um, that's something I would like like to know I, every from everything I've watched and read, she had definitely had a like a level of humility with the work she was doing, and she was, you know, trying to kind of share the share the the praise with all the people in the community that helped her. Um, so yeah, I, I don't I, I don't know. I was a would have been a young <laughs> kid at the time, but I have been lucky enough to um, meet her family and work with Anne Cabell on this book and interview her and. Um, I was able to go to the dedication ceremony for her new highway marker over nice. there at Jockey's Ridge, and nice. her whole, her family was there, her children. Um, so I don't know specifically, but every I guess the only kind of clues I can take is everyone who knew her and remembers her, and a lot of people here on the Outer Banks, a lot of locals still remember her. Um, just overwhelmingly, everyone has like these really fond memories, and they're just kind of always talking about her personality and her smile and her generous spirit right, so right based on what i the information i do have coming from other okay people, yeah. and and i kind of get that vibe from from your book and I, I i don't have any reason to think anything else but obviously she she had a there was a tough part of her as well oh, yeah you know and, and a lot of business people they have you know the people skills to interact with customers but at the end of the day they got to watch out for the bottom line and her bottom line was yep don't develop that sand. <laughs> yeah, I think she, I kind of think of her as the epitome of like the Southern woman who's going to smile at you and speak sure. sweetly to you, but good. like will get what she wants at the yeah. end. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. And in one sentence kind of sums it all up. Well, not sums it up. Some, I'm sorry, but one sentence I want to pull out just to, just to show you how important this landmark is. Today, Jockey's Ridge is the most visited state park in North Carolina. More than that, it's the legacy of Carolista Baum left for all the people. The most visited state park. Mm -hmm. Wow. That amazing? That's, when you think about, I hear about the Smokies. I'm not, I don't tour the Smokies, but geez, all I hear about is people visiting the Smoky Mountains and, and that type of thing. And then you got Raleigh and mm -hmm. Wilmington and everything else. But geez, that's that's an amazing stat right there. Yeah. And she saved it for all of us, which is cool. And I can, I can vouch, I've, I've raised three kids on the Outer Banks and when we were bored, Get in the yeah. car. We're going to Jockey's Ridge. We're going to yeah. hike to the top and wild, roll down to the bottom. Yeah. It's a wild <laughs> place, and we need more of those out here. So yeah. I think that kind of thread of preservation that runs through the book, that just that theme kept recurring almost throughout all the chapters. So, right. Yeah. Right. Um, and going back to the early part of Chapter 5 on Careless to Bound, the kids were out playing, and and they, they hear a bulldozer revving up and getting ready to uh, you know start plowing the dune a little yeah. bit and one of the oldest kids uh ran back to the one person who they knew could right the wrong 
their mother. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And uh, that's funny. She, they must have known their mom was strong enough to uh, tackle that project. That's yeah. great. I think all kids kind of think of their mom in that regard, but <laughs> I think right. they knew especially that she had some extra skills in that area. <laughs> right. Fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, congrats to her. I'm, I'm so happy she's got that, uh, that marker mm-hmm. on her on the, uh, on the highway down by Jockey's Ridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, fast forwarding to Cheryl Shelton Roberts, mm-hmm. which... I, I I was actually here. I moved here right about right before they moved the Hatteras Lighthouse. And so I, I remember hearing some of the chatter of what was going on. And but I didn't know that this woman was such an instrumental part in moving it forward. Right. Um, and let's see, she she writes something, I guess, in her book, right? Um, in a quote from your book, which is a quote from her book, Hatteras sits on the edge of the continent, marking the line between sand and water, safety and danger. This light station site has witnessed all that has come to pass since the birth of this nation until the present. Its history is our history. Cheryl Shelton Roberts in Cape Hatteras, America's Lighthouse. So right there, she just says how important this, this is. And and as you describe in this chapter, and what a lot of people may not know is that there were a lot of locals who were perfectly content with watching this thing crumble into the ocean. Yeah. Think about that for a second. Wow. Yeah. So my question is, uh, boy, she had such strong conviction. What do you think about the backlash she received from those people that were Debbie Downers? Yeah. I I think that, um, I think the backlash was unwarranted, but I also think she understood the backlash. Um, I, I think she really had a deep connection with the people, a lot of them being descendants of lightkeeper families. Um, a lot of the people down on Hatteras Island um, kind of in the camp of we're not moving this thing because it is sort of like the true north in our lives. It's always been there. Our families have grown up around it for generations. Um, and I think the letting it fall into the ocean part kind of came after all these attempts to, well, we can save it and we can um, keep it where it is and we're going to protect it. And that sort of increasingly became impossible and so then after that it was okay well we're not moving it it can it can fall in where it is um so but i think that she did have a deep understanding of their sentiment um and their just their history and their ties to it so she was getting um like i said i don't think any of the backlash she was personally getting um was warranted she got some threatening letters and she sort of eventually was sort of intimidated um enough to sort of even relocate out of the area Right. So obviously um, a big disruption in her life, but um, she really understood the complexity of the whole situation. And, you know, of, of course, in the end, she was instrumental in, in having it successfully moved and we still have it to appreciate yeah. today. So, yeah, I remember the move. It looks great. I, I was in it. I did climb it before it was moved and I saw how close that ocean yes. was. <laughs> and um, I've been to it afterwards and it's, and it's they've done a beautiful job. And I'll, and I'll say, I think people were just a little too cynical because if you owned a construction company and said, yes, we can move it, do you want to be the schmuck that drops it? Oh my <laughs> God. So right. I felt pretty good. If, if they say they can move it and I think they had moved something else before, I believe them, you know? Um, and, and sure enough, they got it done. And it was, it was actually quite a spectacle. I remember that summer was a bit, it was a big yeah. deal how far it moved every day. It was an incredible Do you remember it at all? Yeah, so I was I would have been a kid at the time. So I, I remember, you know, like, hey, kids, they're moving the lighthouse. This is amazing. But I didn't remember any of, you know, I wasn't in the adult world at that time. I did not right. remember any conflict the, the politics or of it politics all. surrounding it. So 
only now in researching for this chapter did I really learn how yeah. political it was. I do, I do recall, and, and again, I just moved here, and I had heard some some people didn't want it moved, and they were worried that it would, they, they were worried it was going to fall down right. during the move. Because it seemed but, impossible to right, move this thing, right. 200 feet tall. Right. <laughs> yeah. So um, that's all I remember, though. And I, I, I kind of thought that was a little hokey thinking back then. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm glad they moved it. it. It looks great, and it's still a, a wonderful attraction. I know it's going through some renovations right now, and it's also highly visited. I think on the on the scale way of up there? national parks, yeah, it's pretty up there too. I believe for it. our little area. Yeah. I believe it. Okay, uh, moving forward to Virginia Tillett, and Virginia Tillett just passed away a couple years ago. She did, yes. And she was an African American who was pretty much born and raised on Roanoke Island, and. I tell you, she, like a lot of these women, is just a game of endurance where she just kept pushing forward, pushing forward. She literally started from the ground up. I think she started as a teacher's aide, which I've been a teacher's aide. It's pretty much on the bottom of the ladder right there. And then she just kept moving up to uh, to do some really great stuff. Um, do you want to talk about some of the stuff she's done in the education world? Yeah, sure. She, she had a long career and a really notable career. Um, she was a board of, on the board of commissioners. She was on the board of education, um, involved with the board of elections. So she was an elected official in our county for um, years and years and years. And like you said, she did start sort of from the bottom up, I think, starting like many of us do on the Outer Banks in right. hospitality and restaurant work, right. um, moving up to teaching. She was at um, Head Start, which, you know, has had so many children kind of come up through there and be raised and um, giving them a good start and then moving into yet these more sort of like um, political or activism roles Mm -hmm. in in the capacity of being an elected official. She was with the um, library for years and she actually drove the bookmobile. So people remember her finally as the bookmobile lady. (laughs) Yeah, so just like her, her touch has kind of been on so many aspects of life in Dare County from, you know, education to voting to, to governing. So really kind of helped shape the area. Excellent. And she started to become very active promoting the Freedmen's Colony. And for the listeners, after the Civil War or when the when the Union uh, came into, took over Roanoke Island, they quickly made a colony for African-Americans to escape, settle, become free. And they called it the Freedmen's Colony. And it's kind of a sad story because they gave it to the African-Americans. Then a few years later, they pretty much just took it away and gave it, gave the property back to its original owners, the farmers and stuff on, on Roanoke Island. But even worse than that is the history has almost been erased and there's almost no records kept of who was there and, and uh, exactly what happened. I mean, there, there's a few records, but uh, sh- so apparently Virginia Tillett has been work, was working pretty feverishly to, promote the Freedmen's Colony and and make it more of a landmark that people could visit and experience. Am I saying that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, yeah, sort of in the, I guess the later part of her life, a lot of her effort and, and enthusiasm went toward sharing the free, the story of the Freedmen's Colony sure. with locals, but also she was kind of pushing to get that into the curriculum in, in North Carolina and North Carolina history so that people would learn about it because I grew up in Dare County and went, you know, daycare through high school uh, yeah. <laughs> every year of school um, in this county. And I never learned um, about Freeman's Colony until yeah. I was an adult. And I was going to ask you that yeah. question. You grew up on the Outer Banks and you, you don't know it. You, 
anything about it did until not, did not learn recently. about it and i it's not that i wasn't paying attention in school i was <laughs> i was a lover of good, school you're a pretty good student okay <laughs> i'll admit it um so I, I yeah you know we learned so much about the lost colony but then we have this other colony that you know, right in much more recent history and we and i had never heard anything about it and it's such an impactful thing to learn about because so many of the descendants of the freedmen's colony um, members still live on Roanoke Island today. So they have this, right. um, and Virginia Tillett herself included. Um, so it's like, you know, to not even have that tie to your own history in any sort of official capacity or, you know, it's something you might learn about in school. Right. It's kind of heartbreaking. And, and you kind of, I think you allude to something earlier in your book here. Here it is. This is in the introduction. Any existing historical records outside of physical artifacts that have been, that have been uncovered were written by European men and presented with, within the context of their outsiders' understanding. Now, right there, you're talking more about the 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 colony on Roanoke Island, mm-hmm. the lost colony on Roanoke Island. Colony, yeah. But you know that that same philosophy, that same mindset, could be attributed to the state of affairs during Freedmen's Colony, which is. The white people didn't want to be seen as this cold, callous group of people. So, well, let's just erase this chapter. This is just me thinking. This is just my own uh, op-ed right now. Mm-hmm. Is that let's just erase this little chapter so we don't have to reflect on how poorly we treated these people. We gave them land and then we took it away. So yeah. let's just you know, it, everybody it, forget about it. It is so interesting, yeah, because it, the, the colony itself, like you said, was established by the government, by the the Union government. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, it was also essentially dismantled by the same yeah, government. Right. And then, um, you know, with the agreement that we're going to give the white landowners their land back, which, you know, they had land. It was occupied by a government project, basically. Right. So you can kind of see it from their perspective. But then for these people that have been promised a home and freedom to essentially be, they really encouraged them and almost forced them to go back to the mainland. Um, right. There was, at the height of the colony, there was over 3,000 formerly enslaved people living wow. there. Prior to the war, there was maybe like 500 people living on Roanoke Island. So, um, but to me, um, the the part of the story that I kind of get stuck on um, when we're talking about fairness is that you know the the freedmen had built homes and from just materials that they found, and they had been told that they could okay we have to leave this land, but we can at least take these homes with us, and then um, a couple references I found, um, I read that they actually burned the homes that they had been promised nice. that they Jeez. could take with them. So yeah, try to, you know, look at this objectively, but there was a lot of, um, injustices, I think that, but the, the happy ending to the story is that 11 members of the Freedmen's Colony, 11 families were able to purchase a plot of land. Um, right. Some is, people were industrious enough. Yeah. To... It's the California neighborhood in Roanoke Island. And right. um, a lot of the descendants of the colonists still live there today. Wow. So I think that's a success story. that they. And really... did you find any, were you able to track down any history amongst those people? Um, no, other than just, it's like, you know how many familiar last names there are on yeah. the Outer Banks. Um, to me, that would be like a whole another book that I would love <laughs> to do is like find these names of people that still live here and have these big family networks and kind of find out what they know about their lineage and how it traces back to the Freeman's colony right. and really start to like put some of those stories and those pieces together. Right. Because in, um, Patricia Click, her book, um, A Time Full of Trial is one of the re- main reference pieces that I use for this. And she did 
about 20 years of research on this Freedman's Colony. And she went wow. and talked to families. And a lot of them, a lot of the older people in the families had these like vague memories right. of the colony or of stories surrounding the colony. But it almost feels like it really did get lost even in people's yeah. family stories and histories and memories. So right. that is a good book idea. And I want to, <laughs> now I've got my wheels turned. Sequel. Yeah. Because <laughs> their families are still here and they're still yeah. a really tight-knit community. The, the family tree would be just fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which of these women do you relate to the most? Or, or are there, and there could be certain personalities or certain traits of their personalities of each person that yeah, you might relate to. I, I would, like, I would be honored to have any of their personality <laughs> traits. Um, I feel like I, and, and increasingly as I get older, I do have like this really strong passion for preservation. I get so upset when I see a new gas station going up right. or when I see another lot being cleared, even if it's just for a house. Um, this is such a special area, a unique sure. area really in all the world. Um, so I think a lot of the women, maybe like Carol Lister or Nellie Myrtle that have that really strong passion for preservation, right. I, I can relate to them cool. pretty closely. Yeah. Excellent. And I can cut this out, but Diane Baum St. Clair, did that name come up at all? I have had so many people after this book came out <laughs> suggest... Sorry to bring up a sore subject. No, no, subject. it's not a sore subject at all. I've had so many people say you need to do volume two because there's like all these other women that like you have to include her you have to include her right. and she did come up and um i also read um i can't remember what publication it was in now but i read a good article on her i think i may have seen it too it wasn't a huge article but it was it was, uh, it was, a, it was great it was yeah. pretty well encompassing you're yeah. thinking whoa this lady was amazing yeah and she owned all that property and uh she was generous enough to pretty much give it to the mm-hmm. town of kill devil hills yeah. for the schools and the rec center and whatever else. I can't remember, but it was pretty, pretty generous, Mm -hmm. pretty big move for her. And she was a successful businesswoman, I believe. And I've come across just by meeting people or by being told about other women, a lot of women who, you know, they're, like I said, you know, their accomplishments, but you would never tie their name to it. And I think they wanted it that way in some regards. Is that right? Yeah. Um, They they wanted to be. Yeah. I think uh, I met, I met someone, she's actually working on, um, an Outer Banks documentary project um, with PBS North Carolina. And her grandmother was really instrumental, I think, in like Elizabethan Gardens and a lot of other sort gotcha. of local um, organizations. And never, I had never heard her name. And a lot, I don't think a lot of other people did. So kind of wanting to be under the radar sort of thing. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Any other projects or sequels you want to talk about? I am so excited because um, of this book, I've had the opportunity to work on a children's book or a book geared toward upper elementary level readers. Nice. Um, and that's a project I'm working on um, with the state. And I can't, wow. I, I don't know that I've been given the, the total go ahead to like fully talk about the no project because it's not out yet. But um, I'm really excited about that. Um, I love working with children and um, writing for children has always been a dream. So I'm really excited Excellent. that this has opened Excellent. that door. All yeah. right. I'll be looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, the name of the book is Remarkable Women of the Outer Banks. This is Hannah Bun West, and you can always pick one of these books up at one of our great local bookstores we have on the Outer Banks. You can also get it on Amazon if you're not near the Outer Banks, and, and feel free to get it from there. Any any other channels or avenues? or? Um, I have a website. It's hannahwestwrites.com. Excellent. It's fairly simple, but there, <laughs> there are links to um, a lot of our different local bookstores you can order from, even nice. if you're not here, and a few other um uh, kind of web ways and websites that you can order the book. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Hannah, thanks for your time today. Thank you so much. 
I'm extremely thankful for Hannah Von West sitting down with me today. The stories she shares in her book are both amazing and important. I really hope she writes another volume because there are many more women on this beach who deserve to be recognized. Be sure to pick up a copy of Remarkable Women on the Outer Banks at an Outer Banks bookstore. If you are not on the Outer Banks, many of our local bookstores will ship to you. This way you can still support our local shops. If all else fails, you can always get it on Amazon. Don't forget, be sure to check out my website, treasuresoftheouterbanks.com, and sign up for the weekly email so we can stay in touch. I promise I won't be annoying, and you can unjoin at any time. I'd like to bring your attention to a new page on the site where I sell merchandise. It's not too early to start shopping for Christmas. I sell a cool t-shirt with your favorite milepost sign on it that I think a lot of people would enjoy. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and until next time, make it a good one.